0: Sometimes I think that when all we hear is no from God, maybe we should go back and take a look at what we're asking him for. Welcome, Manna. If you'd be so kind, uh, fellow students, please turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. (laughs) We'll continue our study in uh, the Gospel of Mark for a couple of more weeks, and then, Lord willing, we'll be moving into 1 Timothy and Titus. Years ago, the Salvation Army, most of you are familiar with that organization, was holding its national convention. This is a lot of decades ago. And their founder, William Booth, was unable to attend the a convention because he was ill. But he wanted to address the convention and uh, that was before cell phones and unlimited uh, long distance and they actually telegraphed back then for long distance communication. So he's going to telegraph his message to the convention who was meeting and he was unable because he was ill. He sent them a one word message that dominated the convention For that year and ever since. And that one word was others. Others. Today we're going to study what Jesus has to say about serving others. By way of historical contrast, Jesus' ministry in Galilee is, is completed. Galilee's in northern Israel. He's been there for about a year and a half. He's been on earth for 32 and a half years. He's completed two and a half years of his earthly ministry. It's now about September, October. He has a date with a cross in 180 days at the Feast of Passover, which occurs in March-April. Remember last week we said he took his disciples to northeastern Israel, Caesarea Philippi, the extreme northeastern part, and showed them his glory, the transfiguration on Mount Hermon, which is about 9,200 feet tall, probably on one of the southern slopes. Rob is going to show you a map of the, the travels of Jesus in the last six months of his ministry. He does quite a lot of moving around. Jesus comes back to Capernaum in northern Israel by the Sea of Galilee and then travels south through Samaria to Jerusalem. After he's been in Jerusalem for a while, he proceeds east across the Jordan River into the region of Perea. That's a part of the area east of the Jordan River, northeast of the Dead Sea. He goes back to Jerusalem again, and from there he travels north to Ephraim, which is one of the tribes in Israel in Samaria, heads into Perea again, and returns to Jerusalem for the final and third time. Now, Mark does not record these travels, but Matthew, Luke, and John do. So the events that take place today that we're going to look at in Mark 10 occur when Jesus is making his last trip east of the Jordan River through the region of Perea, and he's headed back toward Jerusalem. And Mark 10 takes place as they're heading back toward Jerusalem. He teaches his disciples a whole series of lessons in Mark 10 in the form of a paradox. And a paradox is is a couple of MDs. I'm sorry, that's not true. A a paradox is a statement that seems on the face of it to contradict itself. But it proves to be true when you understand that more than one class of objects are being referenced. So I'll give you a classic example of a paradox. Paradox. Paul said in the New Testament, when I am weak, then I am strong. And you say, well, that's self-contradictory. How can you be both weak and strong at the same time? But there's two classes of strength and two classes of weaknesses. When I am weak in my own strength, when I'm not trusting in my own strength, then I'm strong through Christ's strength. So you have two different classes of objects being compared. Jesus is going to run into today, the lesson, we're only going to focus on a portion of the lesson in chapter 10, because there's actually five separate lessons in this chapter. This one today, he runs into pride, really, really, really ugly, self-ambitious pride in his disciples, and he teaches them a paradox, and the paradox is servants are going to rule. Wow, servants shall be rulers. So, Jesus and his disciples have left Perea. They're walking toward Jerusalem for the Passover feast. They're literally going down the Jordan River Valley, which is a pretty easy walkway there. And he's already told them three times before today that he's going to suffer and die. The first time he told them was right uh, before Peter made his great confession that. Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Mark 8, 31 to 32, Jesus said, remember, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, flesh and blood is not revealed to you but my Father who is in heaven. Right after that, Jesus says, I'm going to the cross. And Peter says, uh-uh, you're not going to the cross. That would be really dumb. And he tries to talk Jesus out of it. And of course, Jesus rebukes him and says, Get the behind me, Satan. You're setting your mind on the things of man and not the things of God. The point is, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ had been planned by God himself from before creation. And that was Jesus' mission on earth. And he was not going to allow himself to be talked out of it by Peter. A little while later... In Mark 9, uh, verse 10 to 13, and Mark 9, 30 to 32, Jesus tells the disciples a second time and a third time, I am going to die for the sins of the world. I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to rise three days later. And Scripture says the disciples did not understand what this meant, and they were afraid to ask. I could understand why. Let's pick up the narrative in Mark 10, chapter 30. I mean, Mark 10, verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Now they're walking down the Jordan River Valley. They have not yet hit Jericho. Jericho is right next to the Dead Sea on the northeast shore, uh, and they say they're going up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was elevated, about 2,500 feet elevation, so all the roads led up to Jerusalem. So that's why it always says going up. They were going on the road to Jerusalem, up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. And again he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him. He said, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles." They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. Here's the principle. When you know know that God has called you to do a task, then do it. Regardless of cost. When you know that God has called you to do a task, then do it regardless of cost. And the reason I say, when you know that God has called, people say, well, God called me to do this. God told me to do that. You better make really sure that God told you to do it because there's a lot of delusional people who go, well, God told me to divorce my second wife and marry my third one. Um, I don't think that was the Lord. Just saying. So you always measure everything by scripture. But when you know it is from God, it aligns with scripture. If God calls you to do a task, then do it. Now, Jesus is moving toward his death. He has a specific date when he must die he's going to die as the perfect passover lamb for the sins of the world and he has a date when that's going to occur and that exact date is friday of passover week which is about a week away jesus is operating on a divine timeline and he has been ever since he was born on planet earth many many times in the gospels jesus will say my time has not yet come my time has not yet come my time has not yet come come. Now his time has come, and he is headed for Jerusalem. Luke 9.51, which Rob will put on the screen, gives you a little bit about Jesus' mindset. Now it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, that's crucifixion, that he steadfastly set his face toward Jerusalem. The old King James says, he set his face like flint, Toward Jerusalem. And it has to do with being undeterred. So he's walking along the Jordan Valley Road. He's headed into Jericho. He's told him he's going to die. And he's walking in front of his disciples. And you go, what's the big deal with that? Well, rabbis always walked in front. And his followers, the people that are behind him, are amazed and fearful. And you say, well, what's the point? Well, they're amazed at his courage, number one. He just told them he's going to die. And he's walking to his death, steadfastly, resolutely, without fear. His followers are amazed at his courage, and some of them are scared because they know that when he's executed, what happens to the followers of someone who's executed? Their life's rather in significant danger at that point in time. Now this time he tells him he's going to die. He gives them even more information. He says, number one, the Sanhedrin, that's the Jewish religious authorities, a body of 70 uh, leaders, they're going to condemn him to death. They won't actually kill him. I'll turn him over to the Romans. The Romans will mock, spit, scourge him, kill him, and then he'll rise again from the dead. Jesus does not run away from God's mission for his life. He moves deliberately into God's mission for his life. And his entire mission in life was coming to earth for the specific purpose to die for the sins of the world. And he will not be deterred from that mission that his father has given him. And the disciples are clueless. They do not understand this at all. They seem to believe that he's going to set up his earthly kingdom in Jerusalem. You know, when he gets there in a day or two, he's going to set up his earthly kingdom. And he's going to rule and reign over planet Earth, just like the Messiah was supposed to do. And we know this is what they're thinking, because they tell us. Verse 35. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. (laughs) And Jesus said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant that we may sit, one on your right and one on your left, in your glory. Now, Matthew 20 kind of fills in the details. Matthew 20 tells us they brought their mama with them. Must have been Mother's Day, right? (laughs) This is a really classic Jewish mama, Maren told me. When they came to talk to Jesus, they needed a little help. Actually, as near as we can tell, mama was the instigator of this. Matthew 20, 20 says, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? And she said to him, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. I think there were only two sons, Problem, right? Here's the principle. Self-promotion produces divine demotion because God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Self-promotion produces divine demotion because God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, James and John and their mama come to Jesus somewhat like an immature small child, right? They want Jesus to promise to say yes to their request before they tell him what it is, right? They're looking for carte blanche. They really want Jesus to write out a blank check, sign the blank check, and then they're going to fill in the blank. I mean, if you could have God do anything you wanted, and you say, God, promise me you'll say yes, and then after you promise to say yes, then I'll ask for it. Wow. Jesus, of course, being altogether wise, does not fall in their trap. He says, what do you want me to do for you? Which is really, really an interesting question. If Jesus asked you this morning, what is one thing you want me to do for you? I would encourage you to really think about it before you gave an answer. You might even want to pray for wisdom and say, Lord, I'm not really sure what I should ask for. Because we're going to find out at the end of this chapter, Jesus is going into Jericho and he runs into a blind guy named Bartimaeus. And Bartimaeus says, have mercy, have mercy. Finally, Jesus says, bring him to me. Bartimaeus comes to Jesus and Jesus asks him the exact same question. He says, what do you want me to do for you? And Bartimaeus says, I want to receive my sight. He knew what he wanted. Received his sight. So he asks these two, what is it you want to do for me? And of course, they respond in a way that will make you throw up. (laughs) They say, Jesus, we want you to decree that when you establish your kingdom on earth, that One of us will sit on your right hand and the other on your left hand. Now, just so you know, in a kingdom, the throne itself is the place of the highest honor. And the person who sits on the right-hand side of the throne, that's the number two spot in the kingdom. And the person who sits on the left-hand side of the throne, that's the number three spot in the kingdom. I mean, these are the two positions of highest prestige, highest authority, highest power, highest glory, highest recognition, etc., This is family pride on steroids. Now, the mother of James and John is named Salome. She is the wife of Zebedee. We also know that she's the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. So James and John are Jesus' first cousins because their mothers are sisters. Salome and Mary are sisters. So Salome is Jesus' auntie. And Scripture seems to indicate that Aunt Salome here is the instigator behind this plot to promote her sons over all the other disciples. All three of them believe that they've got the inside track because they're relatives, right? Family. After all, it's not what you know, it's who you know, right? And after all, blood is thicker than water, right? Of course. Salome and your sons are playing the family card here in order to get the position they want to fulfill their selfish ambition. James and John and their mama want to get Jesus first in order to secure the highest positions in the kingdom before anyone else can get to him. Because after all, the early bird gets the worm. So they're climbing the ladder, the kingdom ladder, and they want preeminence, they want proximity, and they want power. They want the glory that comes from being the closest to Jesus And they covet the positions of greatest authority. Interesting. Jesus has taken James and John. Where have they just come from? The Mount of Transfiguration. These three, Peter, James, and John, have already been Jesus' inner circle. They were the only ones that were with Jesus when he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. They were with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. They got to be thinking they're something special. Right, Jesus has brought us close. We're first cousins. So we might as well get the highest seats in the kingdom, like now. Remember that only days before, Jesus had promised them in Matthew 19, 28. By the way, the context of this is Peter says, Lord, we've left everything and followed you. What's going to be in it for us? And Jesus says, Matthew 19, 28, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me, my disciples, in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you shall also sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. James and John probably remembered those promises, and they figured, you know, we're going to ask Jesus to cash that check now. I mean, he said he's going to die in Jerusalem. we, We better get this thing locked in while there's time, right, before somebody else gets to him. Actually, they didn't understand the timing. They thought Jesus was going to set up his throne right now. He's already told them four times he's going to die, and he's going to rise again. They never figured that out. But they knew the promise was going to be that they were going to rule. They just didn't understand that Jesus was not going to rule and reign till the second coming. But it's even more than that. James and John really believe that they are better than the other ten disciples. We've got a case of pride and ambition here. And their timing could not have been worse. When do they ask Jesus for this privilege and this decree to give them thrones next to him in the kingdom? What has he just told them? I'm going to die in Jerusalem for the sins of the world. And right then they come up and say, by the way, can we promise from you that we'll have the thrones in Israel. Do you think the timing was a little off? Amazing. Amazing. The story is told about the Russian novelist back in the 40s, Vladimir Nabokov, apparently a famous Russian novelist, and he once visited his friend James Loft, an American friend, his family in Alta, Utah. And this Russian novelist, Vladimir Nabokov, was a very avid collector of butterflies. I mean, he was nuts about butterflies. Go anywhere to collect butterflies. And he would go out every day with his nets and stuff to collect these butterflies. And one evening, he returned from his daily excursion of butterfly catching, and he reported that while he chased a butterfly, it heard somebody groaning down by the stream in a place called Bear Gulch near Alta, Utah. And his friend Laughlin asked him, said, did you stop to help? And he said, no, I really had to catch the butterfly. The next day, they discovered a corpse of an aged prospector who had died the day before. They renamed Bear Gulch, Dead Man's Gulch, in Nebuchadnezzar's honor. Jesus is going to pay for the sins of the world with his death, and James and John are chasing the butterflies of self-promotion. And this is our world, is it not? This is often us. It is very easy to spend your life chasing the butterflies of this world. And on your deathbed, you will realize, if you get a deathbed, that none of these things mean anything in eternity. Don't waste your life on stuff that doesn't matter. Jesus... Says to them in verse 38, you do not know what you are asking. Now, that would be one of the greatest understatements in all of the Bible. (laughs) You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism which with I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right hand, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Here's the principle. Honor in heaven is proportional to the sacrifices made on earth for Jesus' sake. Honor in heaven is proportional to the sacrifices made on earth for Jesus' sake. See, James and John want the glory, they want the position, they want the prestige, they want the preeminence, without the suffering, without the sacrifice. So Jesus doesn't immediately grant or deny their request, he just tells them, you don't know what you're asking. And this is us today, right? How many of us have asked God for things, and then later on you look back and you go, man, I'm glad you said no, right? How many of you are grateful that God doesn't always give you what you ask for? Because what you ask for is not always, we don't always know what we're asking for. You know, when you're younger, you say, oh, God, please let me marry this person. They're so wonderful. Three years after the marriage, oh, God, why did you let me marry this person? They're such a pain. Of course, they're praying the same thing about you. Oh, God, please let me get this job. The money's really good. Six months later, oh, God, please get me out of this job. My boss is a crook. We can't see the future. So when we ask for things, we ask them like children. We're thinking about the present, and we're thinking about ourselves. We're not thinking about other people. Fortunately, our Heavenly Father is planning for eternity. He wants us to be eternally blessed so that he can, and he, will, and he will receive eternal glory through that blessing. That's why he sometimes says no. When God tells you no, that is an act of love. How many times have you had to tell your children no? How many of them were happy when you told them no? Most of them didn't say, Mom and Dad, your judgment really is better than mine you are really wiser than me you've lived decades beyond me and i'm going to trust that you're going to make the right choice and of course they tell you that when they're eight and you say no of course they don't say that i can't believe this so they go pout they do and we do the same thing with the lord have you ever pouted after god told you no of course right sometimes i think that when All we hear is no from God. Maybe we should go back and take a look at what we're asking him for. Maybe we keep asking him for harmful things or selfish things or wrong things. So he says, no, no, no. Maybe we need to go back and say, Lord, help me to know what to ask for. Maybe I'm asking for stuff I shouldn't be asking for. Because you know, as my Heavenly Father, that this is not going to be good. Long term. So Jesus says, You know what you're asking for, and then he asks them a question that illustrates that glory in God's kingdom is not just free for the asking, and it is certainly not granted to the selfish nor the proud. Honor in God's kingdom is granted by God relative to the degree of sacrifice that is endured while serving Jesus here on earth. Jesus asks them if they're prepared to suffer like he is going to suffer. He says, are you you prepared to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Now, the cup is a common Jewish metaphor for either extreme joy or divine judgment against human sin. So we know that God's righteous wrath against human sin has to be satisfied in order for God to remain perfectly just, and we know he's a perfectly just God, so sin has to be paid for. And Jesus is going to drink the cup of God's wrath, of God's fury against sin by dying in our place. He's going to go to the cross and take our place. So that's the cup he's talking about of suffering, the cup of the wrath of God. And when somebody says, drink the cup, it meant drink the cup to the bottom. All of it. Fully absorbing the full force of God's wrath against sin and sinners. He says, are you willing to be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? In the New Testament, baptism means what? Being submerged, right, completely under the water. In the Old Testament, being underwater meant you were overwhelmed with calamity. If you were underwater in the Old Testament, that was a word picture for being, you were just overwhelmed with trouble and trials. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to be submerged under the wrath of God and immersed in the suffering for the sin of the world. And the truth of it is, not one of us has a clue what that means. We really have no idea what the wrath of God means. Because Jesus took that wrath so we wouldn't have to. We really have no idea what that means. And Jesus says to, asks James and John, are you willing, are you able to do this? And they go, oh, we're able. Yep, we can do this. (laughs) And that is just pure pride. It's just overconfidence. It's complete self Reliance And Peter, who's not these here, but Peter displays this arrogance in only a matter of days. Jesus said, all of you are going to betray me. Peter goes, not me. Even if all these other ones flake out, I won't flake out. I'll die for you. And Jesus says, before the rooster crows, you're going to die and deny me that you even knew me. And that's exactly what happens. When Jesus is captured in the Garden of Gethsemane, within a week, it says... Every single one of his followers forsook him and ran like chickens for cover, right? They fled, every one of them. And only hours later in the courtyard, Peter's gonna deny that he ever knew Jesus. This is not a biblical comment, but it summarizes it. Being spiritually self reliant is stuck on stupid. Being spiritually self reliant is stuck on stupid. Because it's trusting in the flesh to do what we cannot do, only the power of God can do. So Jesus doesn't say to James and John, you're stuck on stupid. He says, I'm going to prophesy your future. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen to you. He says, you will surely drink the cup that I'm going to drink. The suffering that I'm going to suffer, you're going to have a part of. James is the first apostle martyred for his faith. He's beheaded by Herod Agrippa in A.D. 44, Acts 12. That's only probably 11 years from now, about A.D. 32, 33 right now. So 11 years, James is going to have his head whacked off by Herod. His brother John lived until probably A.D. 95. So he was somewhere in his 80s when he dies in exile on the island of Patmos, which is a a virtual prison island. And, of course, he wrote Revelation from that island had a vision. Tradition tells us uh, that John was thrown into a vat of boiling oil by the Roman emperor Domitian, would not renounce his faith, survived it, and was exiled to the island of Patmos. So both of them suffered. One suddenly, one slowly. One died in middle age. One died somewhere in excess of 80. They did taste the cup that Jesus did. Of course, at the time they had no idea that was coming, and that's the sovereignty of God. I mean, some of us die young, some of us die old. Some of us that get old wish we would have died young. I've talked to people like that. Many of you in this room are going to live longer than you want to live. You will. You will long for heaven if you live long enough. Your body will tell you, "I'm so ready to be out of here. These diapers, I'm done." I'm just telling. I'm not trying to depress you. I'm saying, get ready for what's going to face us with enough time. Now, Jesus then tells James and John, by the way, these positions of honor and prestige and all this other wonderful self-pride things you want, they're not mine to bestow at this time. These places have already been prepared for those who will be chosen to occupy them. James and John are seeking selfish ambition. They want to honor the self, not Jesus. And we know that God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Our job, by the way, is not to seek rewards. Our job is what? Seek the Savior. And let God reward who he's going to reward, and when he's going to reward, and how he's going to reward. By the way, the greatest reward of all is not your position in heaven. The greatest reward of all is knowing the Savior. Nothing less, nothing else. Your relationship with Jesus Christ is the greatest reward in life, and the greatest gift you've been given is eternal life. If you want to thank God for something every morning, thank God He saved you. It's easy to think, you know, you look at it and you go, man, James and John, they're really flakes. I mean, they're his cousins, but my goodness, they're really self-centered. Not really. Verse 41. Verse 41. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. You think? Verse 42. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to be young, great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. In many ways, verse 45 is the key verse of this book. So if you want to underline that one, that would be a really good one, verse 45. Here's the principle. In God's kingdom, the way up, Is down. The path to divine promotion is self denial and humble service. In God's kingdom, the way up is down. The path to divine promotion is self denial and humble service. By the way, this is not the first time the disciples have had this problem by seeking to rule over each other. This is not the first time ambition has shown up. Jesus and the twelve are coming back to Capernaum a few days ago from a teaching trip. And Jesus tells them for the second time he's going to suffer and die. So they're walking back into Capernaum. Jesus says, I'm going to suffer and die. Got the picture? Mark 9, They came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? Verse 34. But they kept silent on the way, they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. This is right after, this is the second time Jesus has told them he's going to die, and they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. The fourth time he tells him he's going to suffer and die, James and John say, we want to be first and second in your kingdom. Do you think this is a problem with human nature? Of course. The disciples remind us of the boxer Muhammad Ali, who was famous for his boast. Right? You know what I'm talking about? I am the greatest. story is told that once when Ali was flying on a commercial airline, he refused to buckle up his seatbelt because he told the flight attendant, Superman don't need no seatbelt. The flight attendant said, Superman don't need no airplane either. (laughs) Yeah, he buckled up. Here's the principle. No matter how great we think we are, we are less great than we think. Just saying So, the other 10 disciples have been listening to James and John and Mom come to Jesus and try and get the best seats in the kingdom. And it says they feel indignant. Yeah, they're pretty hacked off, right? They're jealous. And they probably fear that James and John really do have the inside track with Jesus. I mean, they got up the Mount of Configuration, right? They saw the Transfiguration. They were in Jairus' presence when he raised them. They're first cousins of Jesus. I mean, if you're one of the ten, you're going, how do you compete with that? I mean, it's like working for the boss, right? And their kid is on the payroll. Well, you know, it doesn't matter how good the kid is, they got the right last name. They're going to own the business someday, regardless of whether they know what they're doing or not. So these ten have got to feel like, how do you compete with this, right? They're his first cousins. What they're really angry about is that they didn't get to Jesus before James and John did. They're really angry. They should have thought of that first and got to him before James and John did at that point. See, all 12 disciples want to be large and in charge. And Jesus tells them, there are two paths to promotion. Two paths, only two. The world's way is the path of self-promotion. The world's way is the path of self-promotion. The world's way is you exercise authority over others. You command and they obey. You're on top, they're on the bottom. Greatness in this life is measured by how many people obey your commands. I'm the CEO and I've got 10,000 people to do what I say. Aren't I large and in charge? Our culture is addicted to this kind of thing. Everyone pursues power, right? so that they can exercise it over each other. I mean, the whole political process is the point in time is we mean to rule. We mean to rule well, but above all, we mean to rule. Okay, This is the world's way. This is man's way, and ultimately this is Satan's way. Because Satan is the prototype of self-promotion. Right? He led a revolt against God in heaven because he wanted to be numero uno. He didn't want to take orders from God or anybody else. He wanted to be worshipped and he wanted to be obeyed and so he led a revolt and heaven got thrown out of heaven. Most humans today follow Satan's way. They don't want to take orders from God or anybody else. They do not want to give orders. God's way is completely opposite that. The way to, God's way is not self-promotion. God's way is self-denial. Complete opposite strategy. Self-denial is the only path to divine promotion in God's kingdom. You know, in Satan's kingdom, in this world, you get to the top by stepping on top of others, climbing over them, putting them down, putting yourself first. In God's kingdom, the path to the top is by seeking the bottom. The way up is down. The path to future glory is present, humble service. Because what's the promise? God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So the question is, do you want to self-promote, or do you want to let God promote you when he's ready? Self-denial puts you in a position of letting God promote you when he's ready. And the prototype of self-denial is Jesus Christ. Verse 45 says, he came to serve. Not to be served. To serve means to minister. It really means to perform work or to create value for the benefit of others. The word servant in the Greek is diakonos, and it literally means a table waiter. It means a restaurant waiter, someone who waits on tables. When you go to a restaurant, they're a diakonos, they're a servant, they're a table waiter. And this is God saying, you are my children. I want you to be the one waiting on the tables, not waiting at the table for someone to serve you. You serve others. Even more than that, the word slave is doulos. It means a bond slave. Here's the difference. A servant worked for someone else. Your obligation was to do a job. right? We might call out an employee today. A slave was owned by someone else. Their obligation was whatever their master wanted. And Jesus says, Humble service is not optional for the child of God. Philippians 2. This is our great example. Philippians 2 verse 3. Do nothing. That word really bothers me. If he would said do some things, I'd be to live with it. But it says do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. This is completely contradictory to the me-first philosophy of life. This is radical, because our sinful human nature, I mean, we're inherently selfish, right? As Pastor Roger said this morning, you don't have to teach your children to be selfish. They are born that way. They come out, this is my toy, and they take the toy and beat their younger sibling on the head with it because they want it, right? I'll tell you how unusual self-sacrifice is. It makes the evening news. When somebody does something sacrificially for the benefit of another person, it makes the news. That's how unusual it is. And, of course, the ultimate example of self-sacrificial service is Jesus Christ. Philippians 2.5 Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here's the principle. Whom you love, you will serve. When you love Jesus, you will choose to follow him in sacrificial service to others. Whom you love, you will serve. When you love Jesus, you will choose to follow him in sacrificial service to others. And I can hear it right now. Brad, you don't understand. Loving Jesus is easy. But those other schmucks... They're tough. They're not loving people. They're nasty people. Those self-centered people, those sinners, they're hard to love. Jesus says, I loved you, you love them. See, Jesus' love for us is what motivated him to come to earth in the first place. It says he emptied himself of all his, his divine prerogatives and he consented, condescended, to come all the way down from heaven to earth. And we have no idea what that means. Coming down from heaven to earth is a change in zip code that we cannot comprehend. We do not understand what that means because we think this is a pretty good place. Jesus came all the way down from the splendors of perfect heaven to the cesspool of sinful earth. Forever love. Not only that, Jesus chose to limit himself to a human body. In heaven, Jesus lived as a spirit, not subject to any limitations. No space, no time, no matter, no energy, no limitations at all. When Jesus was born as a baby, he took on human form, and he had a lot of limitations. When Jesus came to earth as a baby, he took on pain, because your body can feel pain. He took on hunger. He took on exhaustion, he took on illness, he took on the temptations of the flesh, sin, the ability to be tempted by sin, he never fell into sin but the ability to be tempted. All of these things are things that he he came down to. Beyond leaving heaven and taking on a fragile body, it says he humbled himself to even submit to the point of death. And even lower, death on a cross. The most cruel excruciating and prolonged form of torture and death. By the way, Rome reserved crucifixion for the lowest of the low, the worst of the worst. Crucifixion was considered so repugnant and repulsive it wasn't even talked about in polite society. It was just so horrific. So Jesus, who was innocent, took our place on the cross and died in our place. Now, this is the ultimate example of putting someone else's needs in front of your own. What did Jesus say? Greater love has no one than this, than one will lay down his life for his friends. There are many people who say they're your friend. But I doubt that they would inconvenience themselves for you. You know what a good friend is? Someone you call at 2 in the morning and they'll get out of bed for you. And they will show up when you need them, regardless of whether it's convenient or not. Someone as a friend is someone who will sacrifice something for you, something costly, something expensive. And the most expensive thing we have is our time. Writing checks is simple. Sending cards is simple. Time and involvement and being there whole different level of service. And Jesus gave up the most. Gave up heaven to come here for us. And he says, I want you to model this sacrificial service. I gave my life as a ransom for many. And the word ransom there means lutron. It means the price you pay to release a slave. It's ransom. The truth of it is, our sin has separated us from God it's also enslaved us to Satan. If you talk to the average person today, they may say, well, God and I aren't exactly on intimate terms. But if you said, do you realize that when you're separated from God, you're a slave to Satan? No, no, I'm free. I can do whatever I want. Really? You do whatever your flesh tells you to do. You're a slave. For us to be set free, of course, the penalty for our sin has to be paid. And as you know, Jesus' death satisfied God's wrath against sin and paid that penalty. Because Jesus paid the penalty for my sin, because Jesus gave, God gave Jesus my justice, I can receive God's mercy. That's the greatest exchange in the world. God gets my sin and gives me His righteousness. So when I turn away from sin and trust in Jesus' payments for my sin, I'm set free from my slavery to sin. Here's, most of us in this room would say, Brad, preach it. You're right on. Salvation, that's good. Here's the next step. When Jesus paid my ransom, who do I belong to? Who do I belong to? Who owns me? Jesus Christ owns me. He bought me and paid for me with his blood. He did not set me free to become a slave to Satan again, because I will serve somebody. He bought me, he owns me, and now I choose to serve him because I love him. Why do I love him? Because he first loved me. We will all serve somebody. James and John are busy serving themselves. They want the highest places in the kingdom. Jesus says self-promotion is the way of the devil. Self-denial is the way of the Father. Because God elevates the humble. Have you ever thought about the fact that the only people that can God can entrust great power to are the humble? Because they will be probably the only ones that won't abuse it. Somebody said something one time about Mother Teresa. I'm not making a veracity of this. I recall hearing it. Because she is nothing, God can use her for anything. That's pretty good. Let me review this is a heavy lesson, and it's heavy because it sticks us. I mean, it puts a knife in us. It tells us that we're like James and John. I mean, what, what would our life look like if we stopped promoting ourselves? What would our life look like if we really served like Jesus serves? And you know something? On this day, one of the reasons, moms, we honor you is because you're probably the closest to this we see. I don't know of many humans who sacrifice as much, as consistently, as day in and day out as moms. And men, we try and say thank you mom one day a year. We're really flaky at it not really enough by any stretch of the imagination. But how you love your children, moms, is how Jesus loves us on steroids. And that's a good model to remember on this day that, you know when you read the news, and some famous person, athlete or whatever, is achieving fame and fortune, and they say, to what do you attribute it to? they number almost never say my dad. It's almost mom was always there. Mom always got me out of bed. Mom always made sure I had breakfast. Mom was always making sure I did my homework. That's sacrificial love. That's humble service. And that's what we're called to do. So let's review before Tom comes up. When you know that God has called you to do a task, then do it. God has put his hand on some of you to do something, whatever it happens to be. It could be the most humble service, caring for an elderly, caring for a grandchild. It doesn't matter what the world says. If God has called you to do it, then you do it and pay the price to do it every day because God's watching and your reward is great in heaven. Number two, self-promotion produces divine demotion you got to decide, do I'm going to promote myself or do I'm going to let God promote me? Because God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Honor in heaven is proportional to the sacrifices made on earth for Jesus' sake. What you do now matters forever. In God's kingdom, the way up is down. The path to divine promotion is self-denial and humble service. And you will get no support for this from the world. The world says... You should promote yourself. You should get the position and the prestige and the power. Understand that you serve the king of kings and his rewards are eternal. They last forever. And lastly, Philippians two, whom you love, you will serve. And that's pretty practical. If you say you love your spouse, if you say you love your kids, if you say you love your grandkids, if you say it, you will serve. When you love Jesus, you will choose to follow Him in sacrificial service to others. Okay, I love you all. We have a lot to work on, especially me. And next week, Lord willing, read ahead. I love you now that
1: you know.